The special report that we planned to bring you tonight was about domestic politics, the battle among the Democrats. But we think the crisis in Iran is more urgent right now than the campaign here at home. Welcome back to The Banter, an official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. As you can probably tell, this is not Spencer Moore. I'm Matt Winesett, and I'm joined today by my friend and new co-host, Max Frost. Hello, Max. Hi, Matt. Excited to be here. You sound thrilled. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? So I'm a research assistant in AEI's foreign policy team. I do a lot of work on India and South Asia more broadly. I work with three scholars in our foreign policy department. Um, But yeah, looking forward to doing this and being on the podcast. All right, thank you, Max. Riveting stuff. Our predecessors, Spencer and Cece, did a great job, but we are always looking for ways to improve. So if you have any advice or thoughts, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at banter at AEI.org. Now let's get to the episode. Forty years ago today, the Islamic Republic of Iran was born. How has the Iranian revolution shaped Iran and the world we live in today? On today's episode of Banter, we're joined by Middle East expert Michael Rubin to discuss this question. Michael Rubin is the author of numerous books, including Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regimes, and Eternal Iran, Continuity and Chaos. He holds a PhD in history from Yale, and he's lived in post-revolution Iran. He has extensive experience advising U.S. policy toward the Middle East. He's a frequent commentator on Middle East politics. Before we get to him, though, we have to take a quick break. Hang on, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm James Pethokoukas, host of the AI podcast, Political Economy. Each week, the podcast features a lively conversation with top thinkers and doers on the most important and interesting economic and policy issues of our time. Archived episodes can be found at ricochet.com and follow up blog posts and transcripts at AEI.org. Michael, thank you for joining us today. So we'll start today by going back to 1979. Can you put the revolution in context? Well, you know, a lot of political scientists and historians try to find that magic analytical formula about why it happened. But, you know, in in many ways, it was just the perfect storm. And there is a lot of discord, of course, in Iran. But it would be wrong to say that the Iranian economy was shrinking. After all, most revolutions, and a lot of people forget this, happen when the economies are booming. And that was certainly the case in Iran. Um, The Shah was sick. And we didn't know at the time, um, or we didn't know er a little bit earlier that he had cancer. But at this point, he had terminal cancer. And that may have also been undercutting his willingness or ability to reform or respond. And in many ways, Ayatollah Khomeini was able to attract the, um, the precursor of the internet error communications. And earlier he had just communicated by audio cassettes, which were smuggled and distributed across the border and in markets and so forth. But by the late 1970s, especially when he was in exile in Paris, he was able to give television interviews, radio interviews, newspaper interviews. And so suddenly he just had momentum with him. It really was a perfect storm. So when they're when the revolution first happened, what were the expectations like? Did the Americans or the Shah think that the regime could actually fall? Well, you know, this is one of those really interesting things. Historically, only about 1% of Americans took part in our American revolution. And 2% of Russians took part in the Bolshevik revolution. 2% of Frenchmen took part in the French revolution. A full 10% of Iranians came out on the streets 
for the Islamic Revolution. And again, while you had television interviews, radio, and so forth, this was before social media, before Facebook, before Twitter. So that's an amazing figure. But what you find is they were all united in what they were against. They were against the rule of the Shah. But they weren't necessarily united in any particular vision. And Ayatollah Khomeini had this amazing ability to be all things to all people. He he swore up and down to the Western media, for example, that he had no interest in personal power, that he wanted an Islamic democracy. And of course, once he got back, things changed. But, you know, a lot of people didn't think that the revolution would end up the way it was today. And just one final quick case in point. And there, there's this tendency in the United States to think that, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini came back, led the Islamic Revolution, and seized the American embassy right away. But remember, the American embassy was operating for a full nine months after Ayatollah Khomeini returned. And that's because the United States thought that they could work with this new regime, that they could come to some sort of understanding that this would be more of a speed bump than a brick wall. Yeah, I mean, there's a conception that the U.S. was completely blindsided by the revolution. Well, to some extent we were, but obviously by 1978, 1979, when momentum built, at the very end, look, the Shah left the country. Ayatollah Khomeini came back. It's hard to deny that sort of reality. That said, you can find sort of corollaries to the Arab Spring. After the Arab Spring occurred in 2011, everyone said, oh, yeah, we should have seen this coming. And everyone and their mother claimed that they had an inkling that this was about to occur. But in reality, it caught us all by surprise. And generally speaking, broadly speaking, the Islamic Revolution in Iran was the same way. How do you think people remember the Shah today? Do you think there's a sense of regret for what happened? I mean, Max, you pointed out all these statistics. Do you want to just run through a few? Yeah, so in the mid-70s, Georgetown ranked Iran as the world's fifth strongest nation. It was home to more Americans than any other country besides the U.S., hundreds of thousands of tourists a year. And now the Iran of today, is there a sense that... Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, first of all, when you when you talk about did the Islamic Revolution surprise anyone? Remember, it wasn't. there wasn't an inkling that Iran would go back in time, essentially to um, model itself after the 14th or 15th century. There was a sense that it had some problems, the Shah was a dictator, but that the trajectory would be progress, that it would move forward. Now, when it comes to the way people look at the revolution today, I remember when I lived in Iran, they used to call me Pasari Shaitani Bozork, which in Persian means son of the great Satan. I, I was, what I would often do is read newspapers and um, books and so forth when I lived in Isfahan in the morning. And then I'd go to the famous Isfahan Bazaar and just have lunch and chat with the rug merchants and so forth. They got to know me. They, they weren't trying to sell me carpets. They'd practice their English with me. I'd practice my Persian with them. And there was a guy peddling bananas down the main street of one of the bazaars. And the rug merchant went out and looked, and the bananas were small, brown, and moldy. And he just said, oh, my shah, my shah. When, when I was a young boy, the bananas were half the price, and they were this big and fresh. There's that sort of grass is always greener on the other side mentality. But you know what? In many ways, there's something there. Because the Islamic <clears throat> revolution, for all it promised, it, it wasn't particularly Islamic. Uh, Iranians talk about Dini Khodiman, which in Persian means my personal religion in opposition to that imposed on me by a corrupt state. Uh, it wasn't, certainly wasn't democratic, and it hasn't been able to perform economically and so forth the way many Iranians hoped. Just one other anecdote. And one of my tutors was a 
nursery or, or a kindergarten teacher, and she said that when she most everyone I knew participated in the Islamic Revolution or sympathized with it because they liked what Khomeini had to say. It was only the reality which um, led them to um, to step back. But by that point, you had a war in Iran, the Iraq-Iran War, um, and so it was too late to do anything about it. But she said, you know, for her honeymoon, she and her husband got motorcycles and drove to Paris, France, getting visas on every single border as they went. And today, can you? she said, today, can you imagine any Iranian being able to do that? The Iranians used to see themselves on par with Southern Europe, I mean, Greece, Italy, Spain. Today, they, know, they see themselves heading, I mean, diving headlong into the third world. And it's something which depresses a great deal of Iranians because culturally, the Iranians are quite cosmopolitan and very educated. How much do you think, though, that might just be looking at the past through rose-colored glasses? I was reading... Um the book Modern Times the other day, written by Paul Johnson when he was at AEI, actually. And he described the Shah not as especially pro-West or capitalist or corrupt or cruel, but he still was overthrown because he succumbed to the fatal temptation of modern times, the lure of social engineering. He fell because he tried to be a Persian Stalin. That's not a very... I I, I think that's basically wrong. If you want me to delve a little bit deeper inside, I think the main problem that Iranians faced was that you had... A, a mass wave of urbanization. And so you had many, many Iranians from the countryside flood into the cities for jobs. But just because they were flooding into the cities didn't mean that they had lost their more um, rural values. And so you had a culture war develop, which played into the hands of Ayatollah Khomeini. Now, you've had this sort of culture war over the times, uh, over the years. In 1961, for example, you had what the Iranians referred to as the White Revolution, which is when you made all Iranians um, equal under the law, you gave women the right to vote and so forth. That's actually what the young Ayatollah Khomeini protested when he got exiled. But you had this sort of, um, if you will, social cultural war, which had continued for for years. It's just for whatever reason, the Shah wasn't able to counter it this time around. But to say he was a Stalin, that's a great exaggeration. Okay. Um, So you touched on this briefly, but I know something back before the revolution, hundreds of thousands of Iranians studied in the West, in the US. And then there's a tremendous American influence in Iran itself. Does this still exist? Are most pro-American Iranians in the US living in the diaspora? Or is there still a sizable chunk of pro-American? Well, the, the, you, you, you actually touch on a, a great point, Max, because when it comes to brain drain, we always look at brain drain as tragic. Look at how all these people have fled Iran. But from Nayatola's point of view, you know, these people aren't voting with us anyway. Good riddance. And the reason I bring this up is we see it not just in Iran, but we see it in Iraq when militias attack Western educated women or Western educated Iraqis or liberals force them to flee. There's a purpose to their strategy in forcing these guys to flee. That said, a couple points. Okay. You read AI books for fun. So, so you're a nerd, but I'm going to out nerd you because when I, when I was a student at Yale, Yale has open stacks, and so you can go up into the stacks, and I could find books that had never even been in the card catalog because they had never been taken out. And among them were all these doctoral dissertations of Iranians published um, in the first decades of the 20th century in Germany, in Britain, in France. And when you actually look at these, those who were published in, um, who had done their doctoral research in, in Great Britain, ended up as great Anglophiles. 
those who had done their doctoral work in Germany oftentimes ended up as fascists in the year before, years before World War II. And those who ended up in France ended up as basically, um, well, they like to quote poetry and pet cats. Um, the point of this is that you do have this sort of cultural interplay and in work in Iran, but today, because relatively few Iranians, actually, it's, that's not true, tens of thousands of Iranians can still study in the United States, but if you're not connected or not wealthy, the destination of choice today for Iranians is actually India. Really? Yeah. yeah. And, but you do have that, I mean, Iran, more, Turkey always claims to be the crossroads between East and West. I, I'd actually say you can make a better case for Iran being that sort of crossroads. So when they saw the Shah fall, what lessons do you think the other Middle Eastern nations at the time took from the revolution? And how do you think that changed how they themselves ruled their own countries? Well, that's, that's a great question. 1979 was a watershed year in the Middle East. Because remember, it wasn't just Iran. That was the year we, when you had an uprising in Saudi Arabia that led to the Grand Mosque in Mecca being seized, for example. But it really led to um, a notion that these monarchies were still at risk that they had to become much more security states than perhaps perhaps they had been before. Let, let's just go ahead a couple years, 1982. That was the year where Hafez al-Assad, the father of the current Syrian leader, in response to some Islamist agitation from the Sunni world, Muslim Brotherhood, in the town of Hama, decided to destroy the entire center of the city at the cost of about 20,000 lives, Hafez al-Assad liked, liked to claim it was closer to 60,000. The point being, Tom Friedman called that Hama rules, that you, have to, you, you, you can't have any mercy. You've got to crush this sort of Islamism. And that's sort of what, I mean, Mubarak in Egypt, first Sadat, then Mubarak in Egypt, and, and others really um, came to the conclusion about. So the Shah was too soft is, what, is how they took it. Well, certainly many of the generals who had left came to believe that there was also a sense among many of the um, Gulf states, the oil-rich Gulf states, that they had to protect all the monarchies. And this is why, for example, in Jordan and Morocco, they've been great recipients of Gulf largesse. I mean, some people will argue, and this is a broader Middle Eastern question, when it comes to government legitimacy, are the... Um, are monarchies simply more stable? After all, during the Arab Spring, the monarchies didn't fall. But that may be the wrong way of looking at it, because historically you had monarchies fall in Iran, in Egypt, in Libya, in all sorts of places, in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq. The point is that perhaps the reason why the monarchies didn't fall in 2011 in the last decade is because they were able to buy off their opponents and those that didn't have that sort of oil wealth have learned a great deal about borrowing money to buy off their opponents. Perhaps the Shah's mistake was trying to exile too many of his opponents rather than trying to co-opt them like, for example, the King of Jordan does. Interesting. So kind of shifting, shifting forward to the modern era a bit, to what extent does the regime in Iran still derive its legitimacy from the revolution? Well, I mean, certainly there is written into the Iranian constitution this notion that the purpose of the regime is to export revolution. It's an ideological state. It's not a status quo power. So in many ways, that is its legitimacy. That said, the Iranians have this problem. The Iranian regime has this problem because they know that the majority of people simply don't buy into to that ideology anymore. 
but this is why you have the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. We think of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in terms of its terrorism, in terms of uh, a military challenge to the United States or other countries in the region. But the difference between the regular Iranian army called the Artesh, um, which is just the Persian word for army, or the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is that the army is charged with territorial defense. The Revolutionary Guard is charged with defense of the revolution, which means it's the enemies can be foreign or domestic. So it doesn't matter when Iran has these elections and so forth. It doesn't matter what 90% of the public thinks because the IRGC exists to be that sort of Praetorian guard to defend the supreme leader from popular sovereignty because after all, he derives his sovereignty from being the deputy of the Messiah on earth and it doesn't matter what the majority of the public think. Do we know what the average Iranian does think? Is there any way to get accurate opinion data from that country? Culturally, the Iranians are much more willing to talk than any of the peoples around them. Um, Iran really is a book culture, it's a debate culture, and so forth. And so when you have polling, like our military contracts did in Iraq or Afghanistan, a lot of it's snake oil, as the Afghans and the Iraqis just game it, trying to tell us what they think we want to hear, what can get them the more money. The Iranians will be much more honest, and you can... We've, we've done cold calling, for example, uh, from Los Angeles, and thank God the Iranians don't have caller ID, but you take every telephone exchange in Tehran, you randomize the last four digits. So you get a good cross-section of neighborhoods. Uh, for anyone who's been to Iran, when you see like CNN, Christiana Amanpour, so forth, go in, they're always just going into the northern northern Tehran uh, neighborhoods. It's like trying to determine what's going in, on in um, Syracuse or Watertown, New York, from the upper west side of Manhattan. <laughs> but this way, when you, when you randomize the, the telephone exchanges, you can get a good cross-section. And when you do the number crunching, what we find is 10% of Iranians are so truly believe in what Ayatollah Khomeini was trying to do and think it's just going swell. Then you have another 15% who think the Islamic Revolution was a great idea but it's been misapplied. These are equivalent to the glasnost um, or perestroika communists at, towards the end of the Soviet Union. The other 75% have become completely apathetic. They don't think the revolutionary ideology will work or can be fixed. It's important, however, to realize that they are not revolutionary because last time they had a revolution, they ended up getting a war that killed a million people. I mean, the Iranians tell a joke about any, to, to explain the sort of apathy um, about an Iranian woman who's getting married and her wedding night, she tells her husband, I probably should have told you this before, but this is my second marriage. And the husband goes, what? And she said, no, 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 don't worry. I'm still a virgin. Well, well, how can that be? He said, well, she said, my, my first husband was like Hassan Rouhani, the current president. He just kept promising to touch it, promising, touch it, promising, touch it. And after six years, he didn't touch a thing. I mean, the, the point is, or he didn't do a thing. The point is, most Iranians are apathetic, but every now and then there's a spark. And that spark is what scares the heck out of the Iranian regime, because we've now had these in 1999, in 2001, in 2009, and we've had sporadic economic protests for last year. It seems that this new generation of the Iranian public just isn't buying the ideology anymore. Yeah, we wanted to get to these protests, too, because it's been a little over a year now when they first out, uh, they start they started up drew a lot of international attention. I'm just a normal average consumer of news, so I haven't heard a lot about the protests lately. Are, they, are those still ongoing, and are, do those foreshadow trouble for the regime for the future? They are still ongoing, and they do foreshadow trouble, but what I really do think we should be paying attention to that we're not is looming succession in Iran. 
and the Iranians have only had one change of leadership. Uh, when talking about the supreme leader, when Ayatollah Khomeini died in 1989, um, if you go back to YouTube and so forth, there, there was a heat wave at the time. So they were spraying water on the crowds in the street at his funeral. And the quip on the street was the old man was so senile, he forgot to close the door on the way down. But the reason why the current supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, was able to consolidate control or even be chosen was because he was seen as someone who was weak and who wasn't going to offend any of the major power centers. Plus, he had the religious endorsement of Ayatollah Khomeini. Well, Ayatollah, I mean, you can think about Iranian Ayatollahs in the same sort of hierarchy that you have um, in Catholicism, where in Catholicism, you have the Pope, you have the Cardinals, you have the archbishops, the bishops, and so forth. Well, Ayatollah Khomeini, whether we like him or not, he was the equivalent of a pope for many people. Khomeini, at best, is a bishop. I mean, he tried to be named archbishop or pope, and he was laughed off the stage back in 2004. So who he picks isn't really going to have any weight. Now, if you look at the Iranian constitution, the way it works is you have an 88-member clerical body called the Assembly of Experts, who in theory chooses the new leader. But it's basically a coffee clutch. And what we know from 1989 is you had all these backroom deals and then the Assembly of Experts became a rubber stamp body. The point of this is Ayatollah Khomeini is now in his 70s. He's been publicly treated for cancer, um, which when, when you tweet out pictures of yourself in your hospital bed, that's a sign that you're preparing the public for the inevitable. Plus, he isn't in good health because he barely survived the 1981 assassination attempt. That's why he's partly paralyzed. The point of this is when, when he does pass, Ayatollahs have a habit of living a long life, but they do eventually die. When he does pass, what's going to happen? Is the Revolutionary Guard going to subordinate themselves to someone who they disagree with? Are you going to be able to have a consensus? You're, you're, we're coming to a time of transition, and I'm rabbiting on, and I apologize, but a time of the transition in the Middle East where, for example, the Sultan of Oman, who has ruled since the early 70s, also has cancer. When he dies, according to Omani constitution, you have to have a meeting in two days to pick a successor. When you look at the Iranian constitution, there's no time frame for when the assembly of experts needs to meet so you could have this vacuum. Plus, when we talk about the supreme leader, we keep thinking of, well, how can the Messiah have more than one person to be his deputy? But there's nothing that says that you can't have a committee. And that brings up a whole nother issue. The point is, a decade ago, we couldn't even imagine civil war in a place like Libya or Syria. Yeah. What's going to happen if there's a civil war or a vacuum of leadership in Iran? That's what I think we're not prepared for. And my last point on this before, before I'm quiet is when we look at the last several U.S. administrations, it's always been the foreign policy crisis coming from left field that wasn't discussed during the campaign, which ends up dominating. So, for example, with George H.W. Bush, it was the invasion uh, Operation Desert Storm, the liberation of Kuwait. With Bill Clinton, he never expected to be in the, um, the Balkans. George W. Bush was supposed to be the domestic president, and then we found ourselves in Afghanistan and Iraq, and Barack Obama campaigned to end stupid wars. And yet, not only were we still in Iraq and Afghanistan, but then we were in um, Syria and Libya. The point of this is, I'm not sure we're so we're so used to looking at our past. We never actually and being reactive. We're actually never proactive. And I'm, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll say it right here, and you can buy me a beer in a year or so when this comes true. That we're going to have some major problems with the Iranian succession. We will hold you to that. Okay. <laughs> in a similar vein, if you talk about the IRGC, their goal is to protect the revolution. 
to what extent do they actually do they themselves actually believe that or is it just patronage? You know, that's that's a great question, because we always talk in the United States about what we know about a country, what we know 40 years after the Islamic Revolution. We've spent billions of dollars on intelligence. What do we know about them? But what we never talk about is what we don't know about them after 40 years. So while people talk about hardliners and reformers in terms of um politics. This guy's a hardliner, that guy's a reformer sort of thing. What we don't know is we don't have a clue about the factional divisions within the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, Rand Corporation did an, a study that theorized about what these factional divisions would be, but they, we, can't, we can't say we know that that general or that colonel truly believes in this ideology where that general and that colonel is just in it for the extra privileges. We do know anecdotally that the IRGC isn't homogenous, and some people simply don't believe in the mission. They're just doing it for the privileges. But you can go into the IRGC bubble. And this is, again, the worst thing American analysts can do is project is to mirror image. You can go go into the IRGC bubble when you're 10 years old or even younger because the IRGC, through its paramilitary besiege, will run after school programs. You can think of them like evil Boy Scouts. And you can go in at that time and you can go through all the way to medical school and then have your career constantly within the bubble of the IRGC. And if you have been subject to that sort of indoctrination, are you a true believer or not? This is one of the reasons why American analysts um, were so upset with the former president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, because his claim to fame wasn't just the Holocaust denial and stuff like that. It was he was the first president of Iran to come from an IRGC background rather than from a clerical background. And therefore, many people looked at him as the window into the minds of the IRGC, and was he a true believer or a cynic, we still don't know to this day. If this vacuum does occur during the succession, how much of an appetite in Iran do you think is there for a pro, maybe not even pro-Western, but at least not anti-American, anti-Western leadership transition change? This is something else I think that the Americans often get wrong. There's a tremendous appetite for a regime change in Iran. But, but... That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be pro-American. Iranians are nationalistic. When it comes to the roots of anti-Americanism, forget forget the 1953 coup. I mean, one of the ironies of the 1953 coup are our co-conspirators in that were the religious clergy because they were upset with the Shah and uh, I'm sorry, with Mohammad Mossadegh, the ousted prime minister and his, his increasing leaning towards the socialists at the time. What really got people upset was the fact that all Amer- we talked about the, the huge American presence in Iran. Well, those Americans had negotiated um, basically diplomatic immunity for every American. So when you talk to Iranians who grew up in the 1960s, for example, inside Iran, oftentimes they have stories about someone who was hit by a drunk driver, the driver was an American, and they couldn't prosecute them. And that's what drove anti-Americanism. The point of this is you have this tremendous leftism that's ingrained into the Iranian intellectual mindset. There's a famous book in the 1960s by a guy named Jalal Ali Ahmed called Garb Zadegi, um, Struck by the West, West's Toxification, which basically talks about how we have to defend ourselves from the penetration of Western influence. This is still a dominant intellectual trend, which is one of the reasons why when so many Iranians defect and come out, they don't want to go to the the White House to meet Bush or Obama or Trump. They want to go to Boston to meet MIT to meet Noam Chomsky. Hmm. Um, and, And I'm not sure we're prepared for that when it comes to Iran. I mean, a free Iran it's not going to be a pro-American satellite. It's going to be like France on steroids. But that's still better than the Islamic Republic. Yeah. So one last question, just 
before we wrap up here. Do you think on the 40th anniversary, can we expect to see a 50th, a 60th, an 80th anniversary or no? No, I think this revolution is quickly spending its, itself out. It has very little religious legitimacy left. It has very little um, popular legitimacy left. And when it comes to the transition, I won't repeat what I said before, but many of the um, founding fathers and trusted lieutenants of the top ayatollahs are now also in their 70s or 80s and dying off or sick. Uh, Ayatollah Shahrudi, who used to be the minister of the judiciary, has had brain cancer, for example. And there are some rumors, since he hasn't been seen in public for a while, that he's actually passed. I don't know whether that's true or not, but the point is that we're coming to a a real transition point in Iran. Um, Historically, when a lot of these books to explain the Islamic revolution were published, um, they were commissioned 40 years ago. They were published in 1980 or 1981. Just like with the Arab Spring, you had all these academics who said that, yeah, we should have seen it coming. These are the trends. And they depicted this as the natural pinnacle of Iranian political evolution. Again, I still think it was an anomaly. And if we're not going to accept that it's the natural pinnacle of Iranian political evolution, it's natural that eventually the Iranian system is going to right itself. Okay, well, so we apparently will owe you a beer if there's a succession crisis next year. But if there is a 50th anniversary of the revolution, I think it's only fair if you owe us a beer. Sounds good. Okay. Marco Rubin, thank you so much thank for joining you. Thank us. You. And thanks, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. If you're not already, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or the podcast player of your choice. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star rating and review. You can also send feedback to banter at AEI.org. We'll be back on Thursday with another episode, and we'll see you then. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? So, what do you do here at AI? What What do you do all day? <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> this is I can say. I'm six foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> I'm six six, three hundred pounds. <laughs>